Welcome to the Dayspring Community Church Podcast. Check out our website at dayspringonline.org. And now, Dr. Matt Friedemann. If you turn in that Bible to the 10th chapter of Acts, this morning we are going to be talking about what disciples do. That's been a series we've been on, and this morning we cover especially this message. They stop showing favoritism. Amen? Listen, before we begin, I just want to say, I, I'm just reminded, isn't this beautiful stuff up here? Christmas trees and flowers, just gorgeous. And I always think every year, it just happens magically. Well, no, it really doesn't happen magically. It'd be nice if it could happen, but it happens through a family that has dedicated significant amounts of time every year to both put these up and to take them down. And so... Alfred and Sonia Smith, your family, we love you. Thank you for doing this on a regular basis. Beautiful stuff. So what disciples do, first off, I want you to remember this. Uh, Jesus had given Peter the keys of the kingdom. Remember that? Think, well, what does that mean exactly? This is what I think it means. He uses those keys in the next several chapters after he's been given the keys. He opens the kingdom to the Jews on the day of Pentecost. So stick a key in, turn it, and 3,000 came to know Jesus on that day. That's a pretty formidable use of a key, you've got to admit. Then the Lord says, I want you to go up to a place where not many people want to go because you don't like them and they don't like you. Are you willing to do it? And Peter says, you gave me the keys. And he goes up there and he preaches and has revival with the Samaritans. Then he says, now, I want you to take a step even further than that. I want you to open the kingdom to the Gentiles by evangelizing and baptizing Cornelius, the first Gentile convert, which we talk about today. Hey, y'all, I want you to know, it's not just Peter that has keys. You've got keys. And he wants you to open up the gospel to people who do not yet know. Now, it may be that somebody's going to say, I need for you to use your keys to go to a place like Japan or to go a place like the Congo, or to go to a place like Portugal. I I don't know. He's probably going to say to you, I need for you to use the keys for that neighbor over there. By the way, you don't know his name yet, do you? You've only lived next door to him for 24 years. Maybe it's time to kind of go learn his name. Go take him a pie. Go sing Christmas carols. Do something to start saying, hey, how can I use the keys of the kingdom to begin spreading this gospel outward to people who don't yet know. So that's in large measure what this is about, but very much God-inspired. So let's look at Acts 10, and I'm going to be reading, not through the whole chapter, although it deserves to be read the whole chapter. We're going to start with verse 1, and uh, this is sort of the Matt Friedman version, commentary along the way, all right? Now, there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius. He was a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, or the Italian Battalion, which means he basically was in authority over thousands of men. Now, listen to this rundown. He was a devout man. First of all, he was devoted. Number two, he feared God. Number three, feared God with all his household. He converted everybody in his household, got them all to follow this God. Uh, Then he gave many alms to the Jewish people. He took the poor seriously and he prayed to God continually. Now, that's a nice list of stuff. 
If you want to know what's a good Bible study, just write those things out and describe each one of them and ask the group, what does the word devout mean to you? What does it mean to give alms to the poor, be kind to the poor? What's it mean to actually convert your whole family that they might know this Lord? Let's keep going. Verse 3. About the ninth hour of the day, we think he was probably praying in that ninth hour because it was an hour of prayer. About the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius. And fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, you can imagine, much alarmed. It would pretty much freak any one of us out. He said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, well, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now, I want you to get a load of those two things. You have prayed ardently. You have taken the poor seriously. And because of those two ostensible things, God says, therefore, I'm going to be kind to you. Now, somebody's going to say, well, that's kind of favoritism in it. In a minute, we're going to learn God doesn't have favorites. Looks like he has a favorite there. I don't think that's quite the point. I think Cornelius was receptive. And because he's receptive, God's going to give him more. Anybody here say, well, if that's what receptive means, God's going to give you more, I'm in. Teach me, Jesus, how to be more receptive. Well, Cornelius says, let's keep going. Uh, Verse 5, now dispatch... Some men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who's called Peter. He's staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. Well, when the angel was speaking to him and had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants, and he said, Get to Joppa. Verse 9. On the next day, they were on their way and approaching the city. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Now, I love this. We've got two guys praying, and God's saying, during the time of prayer, this is what needs to happen. Hey, y'all, I think it's important that you spend time in prayer for any number of reasons, but at least one of the reasons ought to be, God is going to show me something he wants me to do today during my prayer and Bible study time. We've got to quit saying, prayer and Bible studies just to bless me. I just want to feel good. I want, to f- I want to feel like I'm doing the right thing before God. And start saying, well, yeah, I want that. But I also want to know, is God speaking to me to tell me something he wants me to do? You know what would be a cool thing? Every single time you pray, every single time you read the Bible, you are saying, God, show me what you want me to do. Now, it might be a big thing. But I'm going to tell you, these are two relatively small things that turn into big things. So don't think it has to be some big thing. Go to Africa. It may be, not just go out there and be nice to that guy. Go, go rake that guy's lawn. Just be open to something. And see what God might not do through him telling you something to do through his word and through that still small voice in prayer. I'm going to tell you, if you're open to it, God's going to talk to you. Anybody here open to that? God talking to you? Now, you might be much alarmed when he tells you what to do, but go ahead and run with it. See what he won't do. We're going to have some examples today. Verse 9. So on the next day, he went up on, a, on his house, stopped about the six hour to pray. Verse 10. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. <laughs> oh, he's praying and he gets hungry. Anybody relate to this or no? No. 
And uh, as he's hungry, God's putting that hunger in him. He saw the sky open up, and there was a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there was in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. A voice came to him saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, some of those animals in there would have been probably clean, some of them unclean by the Old Testament law. I think there were probably some clean animals in there. And so when this happens, Peter says, can't do it, Lord, because you already know some of those unclean. And if anything is with an unclean thing, it becomes unclean. That's the rules of Torah. If you are clean, but you come in contact with something unclean, you become unclean. That's just the way this thing rolls. Peter's saying, Lord, I can't do it. There's unclean things there, and you know what we say about unclean things. And the Lord said, stop it. This voice comes and says, what God has cleansed, no longer considered to be unholy. How cool is that? God can clean some things up so you don't have to worry about being unclean anymore. So this happened three times. By the way, cool thing, three times. How many times did Peter deny him? All right. How many times did God said, if you love me, feed my sheep? Peter in three, has, there's some significance there. I don't know what it is. I don't know if every time Peter did something wrong, his mom had said three times over and over again this. And I don't know what it was. There's something about three times, though, that's pretty important here to Peter. And Peter says, whoa, three times. This means he's serious. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed, let me just say, we're going to skip a bunch of stuff here but basically puts these guys together. Cornelius' guy goes to Peter, and they say, okay, this is what our man Cornelius experienced, and he wants you to come to Caesarea and meet with him. Peter says, all right, I know that's true, because he shared the same kind of thing with me. Let's get moving. And so what happens is they go to Caesarea. We'll explain a little bit about this more later, but if you go all the way down now to verse 44, while Peter was still speaking words, in other words, Cornelius says, all right, here we are. This is the vision I had. Speak to us. And Peter preaches the gospel to that family. And while Peter is still speaking, verse 44, the Holy Spirit fell upon those who were listening to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because of the gift of the Holy Spirit. It had been poured out not just on circumcised people like themselves, now the Holy Spirit is being given to the unclean Gentiles? Could this be possible? And it is possible. For they were hearing them speaking with tongues and exalting God. Then Peter answered, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to stay on for a few more days. Lord Jesus, help us with this as we hurry through it to try to figure out what does it mean, not to show favoritism, but to be wide open to the kingdom possibilities through our prayer life into our week this week. In Jesus' name, amen. So the revolutionary message to Peter came Go speak to formerly unclean people, formerly, because I've made them clean now, so that you can talk to them, so that they might know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. So he spoke to Peter in private prayer, spoke to Cornelius, apparently, in private prayer, and I just want 
you to know, Luke apparently uses this occasion to lead people in the new avenues of ministry. And I am thrilled to be able to say this is a congregation wide open to new avenues of ministry. I'd like for more of us to start going to God in prayer and saying, Jesus, even this week, not just say, hey, I'm going into prison ministry now. He may say that. I hope he does say that. Because Bill Durr assures me that door's about ready to fling wide open for us through Zoom out to the penal farm. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. But having said that, let me just say this. Maybe God this week is going to say there's an avenue of ministry for you with your friend, with your relative, with your associate, with your neighbor. I'm speaking to you now through the word and through prayer. I'm speaking right now to you. Get moving. And if you're crazy enough to get moving, then he's going to probably say this. If you're crazy enough to get moving on that little thing, I'm going to give you a little bit bigger thing. And pretty soon, you're a formidable minister for the gospel of Jesus Christ because you're willing to take God seriously at the point of your prayer and Bible study time. Now, having said that, this whole thing of clean and unclean, Peter invites a soldier and his servants into the house, and even then, Peter gets what God's saying. It's okay to invite them into the house. It's okay to hug them. It's okay to shake hands with them. It's okay because I'm on the move, and I'm on the move through you into people's lives like never before. Oh, God, make that happen to us. May that happen with even the people here this morning. Now, saw an interesting thing. There was a study that came through the Wall Street Journal. And the study said this, the further from native sounding an accent is, the harder we have to work and the less trustworthy we perceive the information to be. One of the things they were trying to say is, why something like racism? Why is it that we just don't like some people? Why is it because of that not likeness, we pretty much build on that and that can become hatred? Why? And this is what the study did. They found out it wasn't so much skin color as it was accent. That the more native sounding an accent is, the more we like the people. But when we start moving away from our accent, the harder we have to work in order to understand. Now, can you imagine? It's not just an accent, but that soon moves to mores, which is other ways of doing things, other ways of thinking. And the more you're going to begin talking to people who have a different way of perceiving, even talking, you're just saying, you know, that takes work. I'm not sure I want to take the work necessary to do that. And so these people said this. The heavier the accent, the more skeptical the participants became. But he said, we're really not racist so much. We're really not prejudiced so much as we're lazy. Our brains are lazy. In the researcher's words, our brains prefer the path of least resistance. So you meet somebody with a different accent, a different way of thinking, different way of doing things, and you know, for me to somehow relate to them, it's going to take some work. This brain is going to have to get in full-time gear, powerful gear, top gear, and I just don't want to. And that's, and that's where our problem takes over. And so these guys said this, we show favoritism toward people who resemble us. We need Jesus' help to uproot our partiality and love people who do not resemble us. Amen? Because if you think about it, no one resembles you exactly. It's a different, quote unquote, it's a different world. 
And we've got to be wide open to the possibilities of that different world. Are you open to it? And I believe that's what God's trying to get Peter over here right now. Hey, listen, you're going to Caesarea. To go to Caesarea, this is what's going to have to happen. You're going to walk along the north-south colonnaded road called the Cardo. Now, Peter, you know, think about this. Peter has never once been in a Gentile city. You go look it up. Try to figure it out. What you're going to find is he was in the regions of Gentile cities, but he never went into an actual Gentile city. So this is a first. I'm going into pagan land. Hey, listen, I've been there and done that. (laughs) I went from the land of Christianized Great Bend, that's my hometown, to a dorm room at the University of Kansas. Oh, my goodness. You talk about different ways of acting, different ways of thinking, different ways of smoking and drinking. I'm not saying I shouldn't have been there. I'm just saying, whoa, it was a different world. And my brain had to start getting unlazy just to be able to relate to a campus like that across the next five years, actually across the next seven years. So uh, you go there, you say, okay, Peter going in to a Gentile city, and as he's going in, what he sees is columns on both sides of the street. Pretty soon what he starts seeing is gods, statues of gods. I don't know who they would have been, Venus, Hercules. He's seen gods, Artemis. He's seen gods. He has never, ever been around anything like this. All of a sudden he is now. And the guy that uh, has told me all about this says, all of a sudden now he's getting sunburn on the top of his mouth. You say, what does that mean? He can't believe what he's seeing. And he can't believe Jesus sent him to so despicable a place as this. But Jesus did. He gets it. So he goes to this house of Cornelius, right past the temples, right past the pagan gods, and he goes to Cornelius. He's the Italian cohorts battalion leader, call a centurion, loyal to his commanders, has leadership abilities, he's courageous, he commands thousands. And as a Roman officer, he would have sworn allegiance to the divine emperor. So, as Peter's headed that way, he says, I know this guy has said yes, sir, to the emperor, Caesar. And not just yes, sir, but I worship Caesar. (coughs) Peter knows all this, but he also knows that this guy's serious for God. He's a God-fearer, which means... He goes to the Jewish synagogue, has to kind of stand on the outside of the activity, but he's absorbing things, he's learning things, he's open to things. He doesn't know most of the pagan gods of his colleagues. He studies scripture. He prays at least four times a day. He loves people. He gives to charity. He has had a radical conversion and probably no longer worships Caesar at all. He has had a radical conversion to become a Roman battalion leader to now a God-fearer who's now standing on the outside of synagogues and learning more about this Yahweh God. And so he doesn't know anything about Jesus. He doesn't know anything about what's going on. And Peter shows up. And basically what he tells this great man named Cornelius is, you have had a radical conversion God wants to take you deeper. He wants to put you on a whole different level. Y'all, some of you have sent here today through four feet of snow to sit here 
And he wants you to hear this message. No matter how far along you are in this Christian faith, he wants to take you deeper. He wants to take you higher. He wants to take you further. Are you willing to go with him? Can I say that again? Some of you here today, because the word of the Lord for you is this. Where you're at is not enough. He wants to take you higher, further, deeper. And you're saying, I don't even know what that means. Well, then you and I need to talk, but most of all, you and God need to talk because he's willing to tell you exactly what that means because he told Cornelius that day exactly what it means. Listen, we're going to have a baptism today. It's pretty cool because when we baptize, I've already told the family, you know, one of the key words here, you've all heard this a million times, but that means I'm going to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And when we do that, that means you are absolutely overwhelmed with God. That's kind of what it feels like. I'm dry right now. I got this sense I ain't going to be in a minute. I told us, they said, we're a little nervous here. Yeah, okay. But I promise you, we'll bring you back up. I remember... I remember we used to do this in a kiddie pool out in the back of the skating rink. Remember our first baptisms? Those are wild and woolly events. So we take them back there, and, and uh, I'd say, okay, you ready to be baptized? Yeah. I remember one of the guys, poor guy, I don't, I don't think he stayed at Spring long. I, we baptized him, and I noticed a little bit of his head wasn't quite under, you know, a little, a little dry patch there. I brought him up. I said, I don't feel good about this. We're going back down. <laughs> I think I put him down three times before we got him all. The pool wasn't cooperating. Now I'm going to put you down. Promise we won't do that. Okay, I promise you. Because we want you all to come back, all right? We did it that day because I wanted him to be absolutely 100% overwhelmed by God. It says it happened this day. They were baptized and they were overwhelmed. And it says here, particularly Overwhelmed with the Holy Spirit. Praise God. Now, whole point is, God does not make distinctions in His new society. He wants, yea, even Gentiles to come to know Him as Lord and Savior. He wants white people to come, brown people to come, black people to come. He wants all kinds of people to come to know Him as Lord and Savior. He wants heterosexuals to come. He wants homosexuals to come. He wants transsexuals to come. He wants all kinds of people to come and be dipped down and overwhelmed by Almighty God. Do you believe he can do that? I mean, he did it with you, so you got to believe it, right? He can do it. He wants to do it. And he wants to do it increasingly in this church, through this church, for his glory. Now, I want you to know we've never quite got it. You say, well, that's obvious. It's not obvious. To this day, the church still struggles with some of this stuff. We still struggle with things like racism. You might as well go ahead and say amen because you know it's true. I hope not this church because the first announcement we ever made in this church is if you have a problem with worshiping with someone of another race, we'd like for you to stand up right now and walk through that exit sign. First announcement we ever made at Spring, and it's still true. But you know something? The gospel's wide open to the races too. We want racists to get converted to Jesus Christ and get overwhelmed by the Spirit of Jesus. But there's racism. There's nationalism. Hey, look, what do you think Nazi Germany was all about? It was a strong nationalism. And i got to tell you, I appreciate 
the whole message of America first. But I don't want to follow that so far to say, no, it's really kingdom first and Jesus first. And if America first ever supersedes kingdom first and Jesus first, you know you've got a God in your life that needs to be dethroned. I don't care who the president is. So we got racism. We got nationalism. We've got tribalism. I've been to Africa. I got to tell you, forgive me for my rank paganism right now, but they pretty much all look the same to me. When I see an African, I see an African. Not them. Even within Nigeria, where I go, I've been about five or six times in Nigeria, they can tell which tribe people come from. They swear they can tell, even an African-American, what tribe they came from, just by facial figures. I thought, well, tell me more about that. But there's tribes, and what's great about the seminary that I worked at, all these tribes have been brought together to love and to serve Jesus, and they can tell you, we don't like their tribe, but I love them because God has brought us together. I'm thinking, how can you tell they're from a different tribe? Well, can't you tell? Look in their face. I'm thinking, I'm looking, I'm looking. There are ways to tell. I can't tell because I'm just a stupid white American. But they can tell. And they can tell you. And there's serious tribalism even amongst us that Jesus needs to heal us from. There's casteism. We got our friend Guna Kumar that works in India. And there are certain ranks of people and you don't play with the ranks. You do not play with the ranks. Now, it's, it's getting more liberalized as time goes on. But Guna has lived long enough to know when he was a child, it was serious stuff. You did not play with it. And it's still happening today. There is casteism. So it's not, what I'm trying to tell you, it's just not an American thing. This racism, this tribalism, this nationalism, it's international. And this is why. When the devil was able to get us to choose against God that came in the, the heart of humans. Not just white humans, not just black humans, not just brown all kinds of people. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. The social and cultural snobbery, there's sexism, and God says, I want you to rise above this day spring. Church of Jesus Christ, I need for you to be a different kind of people. Are you willing to be that kind of different? Michael Ramsden shares this story. He keeps the name private, but he says there was a minister I knew from Iran. And they were driving, him and his wife were driving. They stopped in a small Iranian village. They just wanted to purchase some water. And before entering into the store, the minister noticed a man holding a machine gun and leaning against the wall. And I'm with him. That just kind of scares me. Guys hanging around carrying machine guns just frighten me a bit. And so they're, they're doing that. Uh, the minister's wife looked at her husband, put a Bible in his hand and said, give that man this Bible. <laughs> Good wife. Husband looked at the man, saw the menacing beard, saw the dark glow in his, his face. And he says, I don't think so. She persisted. I'm serious. Give it to him. Please give him this Bible. So the husband, finally trying to get rid of his wife, said, okay, I'll go pray about it. I don't know, have you ever used that technique before? I'd like to get out of this moment. Let me pray about it, okay? So he went to the shop, purchased the water, got back in the car, started to drive away. His wife looked at him and said, I guess you didn't give him the Bible, did you? He said, no, I prayed about it. It wasn't the right thing to do. 
she quietly said, you should have given him the Bible. And she bowed her head right there and started praying. And so the man said, stops, puts in park, gets out, stomps out of it. Let me have that Bible. Stomps out of his car, goes up to the man and says, here's the Bible. I want you to have this Bible. And the man he was giving it to started to cry. And the man, once he recovered, said, I don't live here. But I had to walk three days in order to get to this village. Three days ago, an angel appeared to me and told me to walk to this village and wait until someone has given me the book of life. You just gave me the book of life. That minister said, I need to repent. He became a courageous witness for Christ. And guess what? Eventually, he and his colleagues were martyred in Iran for that faith. But y'all, it's what he's calling us to do. Listen and obey. The great word in the Old Testament, Shema, means listen and obey. God is speaking to you. You might not be listening, but he's speaking. And even in a prayer time this week, when you've got an open Bible, listen to him speak. He'll go tell you to do some big thing, probably go tell you to do some small thing. And once you find yourself obedient to the small thing, watch to see what happens next. Frederick Douglass was probably America's most famous abolitionist. Delivered thousands of speeches, wrote three autobiographies, started newspapers, met with President Lincoln, championed the cause of civil rights. But most people, when they study Frederick Douglass, they go right over his radical Christian faith. But he had a radical Christian faith. Before his escape at age 20, Douglass witnessed and endured great cruelty. He had so-called Christian masters, Christian slave owners. And he saw firsthand brutal whippings, cold-blooded murder, physical and psychological abuse. He watched a slave master beat his aunt. And his aunt was a 15-year-old girl. Beat her nearly to death. In 1826, he was sent to Baltimore to live with a couple, Hugh and Sophia Ald. Sophia was a devout Christian. And she read one day from the book of Job. And Frederick Douglass decided, I would like to know more about the man called Job. Because he was told that while suffering, he blessed the name of the Lord. Douglass said, I don't know what that's all about, but I want to be able to bless the name of the Lord even while suffering. Oh, Lord God, teach me about Job. So he taught himself how to read. As a teenager, he formally converted to Christianity. He had free black Methodists that kind of shepherded him and discipled him. So eventually the old sent him back to the eastern shore. He went to the eastern shore and for the next three years worked as a field hand before escaping and settling in Massachusetts. And he became involved in the abolition movement. And he was best known, perhaps, for this. Quote, Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, I recognize 
the widest possible difference. For Douglas, the problem was not Jesus. He believed in Jesus. For Douglas, the problem wasn't the Bible. He believed the Bible. For Douglas, the problem wasn't Christianity. He believed Christianity. It was the hypocrisy of Christians that he had a problem with. And so this way, he condemned, quote, corrupt, slaveholding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity. And he blasted, quote, the man who wields the blood-clotted cowskin during the week, fills the pulpit on Sunday, claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus, but he covers his infernal business with the garb of Christianity. And Frederick Douglass says, that kind of Christianity has got to go. We believe in the Bible, we believe in Jesus, and we believe in the radical faith he's calling us to, and it's a faith that shows no favorites. It's a faith that can look at America and say, white people are not better than black people. Repent, white people, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he would say, hey, I need some people crazy enough to say, Goodbye to the whole slave trade thing. Goodbye to slavery. Goodbye to treating people as second and third and fourth class citizens. And hello to I am a sinner saved by grace through faith. And I want you, whoever you are, to be saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. And I'm willing to die for it. I'm willing to die for that kind of faith. And so y'all... Who's your Cornelius? Who's the Lord telling you to go talk to this week? I'd pray about it. I'd open up the Bible. But one thing's for sure. That person may be just like you. But probably not. And what if that person is radically different from you? Just act in faith. Do what he's asking you to do. Plant the seed. You may never hear about it again. But be who Jesus wants you to be in the moment. Stop being brain lazy. Stop being faith lazy and get moving. What's cool about this is Cornelius and all his household got baptized that day, overwhelmed by God that day. He took Cornelius deeper. He's going to take you deeper. If you're crazy enough to read your Bible, if you're crazy enough to pray and say, Jesus, What different thing do you want me to do this week? Not, hey, for the whole next year. He might tell you that. But this week, today, what does Jesus want me to do? Some crazy thing he wants me to act in obedience with. If you're crazy enough to do that little thing, (laughs) oh, I'd love it if every single person here would do that little thing to watch what would happen next week. This place would explode for Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about this place. I mean this place, the Jackson metro area. If he could find just 100, John Wesley was famous for saying it. Give me 100, give me 100 crazy people who love nothing but God and hate nothing but sin. I don't care if they're laymen or clergy. Such alone will shake the gates of hell and establish the kingdom of heaven upon earth. Give me just 100. We'll take England, yay. We'll take America, yay. We'll take the world. And he believed it. And Jesus believed it because Jesus didn't say 100. Jesus didn't need 100. He says, give me 12. Then he said, give me 13. Give me 13 guys, the 12 plus Saul. We'll take the world. We'll take the Roman Empire. Then we'll move out from there. Are you willing to be one of the 100?
You'd be willing to be one of the 12. Can you say this? Jesus, count me crazy. Jesus, count me crazy. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll go to that person. Yeah, keep praying. It's okay. I'll go to that person. I'll go to those people. I don't care if I even hate them now. See you holy people. I don't hate anybody. Yeah, right. I don't care if I hate them now. I will go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll be who you want me to be. I'm tired of being brain lazy. I'm tired of being faith lazy. I'm ready to erupt. I am Jesus crazy. Tell me, Lord, and I'll go. Can you say the word Shema? Say the word Shema. Shema means in the Hebrew, hear. But it also means obey. Shema. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Shema.